1: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts.
2: Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists.
1: Now, it's a fact that some drugs or therapies work better if they're administered at certain times of the day. It's also a fact that people who do shift work suffer higher rates of heart disease and cancer. In other words, time of day is very important to the way the body works. And this week we're exploring how the body keeps time, why poor sleep can make you put on weight, and whether bedtime stories can actually cause insomnia.
3: I occasionally have trouble sleeping and find that reading a book before bed really
4: helps me to relax and feel tired. I was considering getting one of those electronic book readers that are becoming popular nowadays, but then I was wondering, would the light of the screen stimulate your brain in such a way that it would prevent you from becoming tired?
1: The answer to that one is on the way. Hello, I'm Chris Smith and I'm joined this week by Ben Valsler. Hello, Ben. Hello, and in the news this week, we'll find
5: out how cells grafted into the eye can restore sight to blind mice and explore a way to heal injured hearts by turning scar tissue back into cardiac muscle.
2: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk.
1: Now the ancient Greeks are credited with first pointing out that some plants appear to be able to tell the time by altering their leaf shapes during the day and some of the first evidence for the existence of a similar internal clock in animals including in us was produced about a hundred years ago when scientists showed 24-hour patterns of activity even in the absence of any time cues and now we know a lot more about how this whole system works and partly thanks to one of the pioneers in this area of study, which is Oxford University's Professor Russell Foster, who's with us this week. Hello, Russell. Hello, Chris. Thank you for joining us. First of all, um, how does this body clock actually keep time? Uh, well we have, we have this internal representation of a day and in
4: mammals we're beginning to get a pretty good understanding of how this clock ticks. If you go into the brain and if you go to the base of the brain into an area called the hypothalamus, there's a paired structure called the suprachiasmatic nuclei, um, the SCN and we can think of this as this master body clock. If you were unfortunate enough to have a tumour in the brain which would damage that, those SCN then your 24 hour rhythmicity would go. So there's this master pacemaker uh, residing within the brain that's imposing, to some extent, this, this internal representation of the
1: day. So this is a cluster of nerve cells? Yes. And how do they work? What are they doing? Well, what's
4: remarkable is that you can take one of those individual nerve cells out, stick it in a dish, and you'll see that an individual cell will show a 24-hour oscillation in electrical activity. And before that, we thought that maybe this SCN works because of a network property, lots of different neurons sort of talking to each other to form a circuit. But the, f- the discovery that a single cell can generate a circadian rhythm, a 24-hour oscillation, showed that the
1: mechanism mechanisms must be molecular, they must be subcellular. And because you've got nerve cells that are changing their activity over this 24 hour period, this enables them to be connected to other parts of the brain and therefore regulate the activity of other brain structures, presumably?
4: Yes. Well, first of all, each of those individual SCN cells are talking to themselves, and that coupling is really important in part of the 24-hour oscillation. And then there are two ways in which the body clock will communicate with the rest of the, of the organism. One is via direct neural connections, and there are other, humoral, some sort of neurohormone sort of neuro release from the SCN. Really, that's where our understanding is, is, is not so good, because we don't really understand in fine detail how the master clock communicates with the, with the rest of the body.
1: Because it's one thing for a bunch of nerve cells to have an activity like this. It's another for other cells around the body to pick up on and respond to that if they don't have a direct nerve connection. Yes. And what we used to think is that this master pacemaker
4: simply imposed and, and drove a 24-hour oscillation on the rest of the body. And then from Schibler's group in, in, in Switzerland, he showed that individual uh, cells could still, not, not SCN cells, cells, in fact, these were fibroblasts, you know, they'd been in culture for 30 years. Skin he, cells. Yeah. He, he shocked them with, by putting 50% serum in the medium and then showed that there was gene expression with a pattern of 24 hours, showing, you know, the, for the first time that essentially every cell has this capacity to generate this, this 24-hour rhythm. And and what's so exciting is that the SCN has to act as this master pacemaker, rather like the conductor of an orchestra, producing a rhythmic signal from which of the, the rest
1: of the body takes its, its cue. What is the nature of the actual clock work? What are the cogs in those nerve cells that are ticking around keeping time? The, the molecular clock,
4: it's, it's fundamentally a feedback loop whereby a gene produces a protein, interacts with other proteins to form a complex and then enters the nucleus and then regulates its own expression. So
1: you have essentially a molecular oscillation. A sort of genetic domino effect. One thing turns on the next, trips on the next, turns off the first and it goes around in a circle that happens to take 24 hours. Yeah, very much so.
4: And of course, the rate at which you turn those genes off, the rate at which the proteins are produced, the rate at which they form a complex, the rate at which they enter the nucleus, all of those, those things interact to form the 24-hour dynamics. And therefore, you need a whole range of other proteins, sort of kinases and, and uh, you know, regulating the, the activity of the protein complexes.
1: What about the fact that we don't live in a world where time is static in the sense that I can jump on an aeroplane, I can go forward and backwards in time zones because of the latitude we live at. We have days which are longer and shorter at certain times of the year. How does the clock accommodate that well well the clock to be of any use to actually fine tune
4: physiology and behavior to the varying demands of the rest activity light dark cycle has to be set to local time and and the critical mismatch of course when one travels let's say from Cambridge to to New York is that you need to realign to New York time and the primary but not exclusive way that the body does that is exposure to the light dark cycle the new light dark cycle sets the internal master clock in the SCN to local time and we know that it's the eye that's, that's detecting that light in us and there's a special cell within the eye that's, that's detecting this, this light so, so for example it's not the classical visual system the rods and cones of the, the eye that are required for this light detecting mechanism but another cell class Gone. I'm intrigued. What is the cell? <laughs> well, now? it's a small group of photosensitive ganglion cells. Now, the ganglion cells are those cells in the retina that are, are almost the, the last bit of the pathway. They're the, they're the cells that form the optic nerve and then go off into the brain. And what's become very clear over the past um, f- 15 years, I suppose, is that there's a, a, about one in 100 of those ganglion cells is directly light sensitive and
1: will project to the clock structures in the brain, the SCN. So you are exposed to bright light, these ganglion cells interpret the bright light and they tell the brain about it, so the brain has that time of bright light exposure... It knows when morning is, and it uses that to refine the clock. Absolutely, and and what's turned out to be completely remarkable is that you can
4: be visually blind, have no conscious perception of light, and yet these these photosensitive ganglion cells are still there, working away, regulating your internal time. And we've studied several individuals now who have lost their classical visual cells, they've lost their rods and cones, and yet they can regulate their body clocks perfectly well.
1: What happens if you have individuals who have no eyes for one reason no or another eyes. or they've lost their eyes through injury, would their body clock fail to reset in this way then?
4: Absolutely. And, and this is what, what now we're working with our colleagues in ophthalmology because ophthalmologists not only need to explain what it's like to lose your vision, but in those circumstances where you've lost your eye, they also need to know what it's like to be plunged into unremitting jet lag for the rest of your life. It sounds awful. It's terrible. And of course jet lag is so ghastly, not because you're simply five hours, let's say, shifted from Cambridge to New York. It's because um, we, we're talking about the, the, the mismatch between the internal clock, the master clock in the SCN and all those peripheral clocks. It's, it's as if you've got a temporal smear. Everything is slightly misaligned. It's rather like the conductor is at a different beat from the violin section to
1: the to the brass, the whole cacophony of sound rather than a symphony. It really does sound awful. So all of your tissues <laughs> are effectively running on different time zones and so there's a, a communication problem between them which is why you feel so awful when you're jet lagged but that could be at the root of diseases where the body clock doesn't work properly that absolutely and that's that's the thinking
4: that in fact it's internal desynchronization which is such a problem for for, for overall health
1: and it's it, it may be one of the problems that for example night shift workers get what about people who have other disorders, mood disorders, psychiatric disorders, bipolar disorder where people can't go to sleep, depression where people struggle to get to sleep and then they wake up very early. Is the sleep disturbance a cause of their symptoms or actually is it just one manifestation of the underlying process? Well, in severe mental health, in psychosis, for example, it's been reported, uh,
4: abnormal sleep has been recorded way back from, you know, the 1880s. But it's always been assumed more recently to be, well, you know, individuals with mental health problems don't hold down a job um, or the antipsychotics they're on and this is, you know, the bad sleep is as a consequence of that. And what we're discovering is that that's not right. There seems to be a fundamental overlap between the mechanisms um, that predispose you to mental health and those that are generating a normal sleep-wake cycle. What's become very clear is that, of course, sleep is a lot more complicated than just the body clock. It's involving multiple brain structures and multiple neurotransmitters. A defect in one of those that gives rise to a mental health problem will also have a a ripple effect across um, sleep and, and sleep problems.
1: Brilliant. We'll leave it there for now. That's Professor Russell Foster. He is from the University of Oxford. And if you'd like to see how the body clock works, we've put together a special Naked Scientists scrapbook episode for you this week, which takes you through graphically how the circadian clock works. That can be found at nakedscientists.com scrapbook or look up Naked Science scrapbook on YouTube, where it's also available.
5: obesity is a growing problem in the western world to the extent that it's being dubbed an epidemic the concern is that it's linked to diabetes heart disease stroke and a wide range of other conditions but why are obesity rates rising so rapidly new research suggests that poor sleep may be partly to blame as hannah critchlow has been finding out
3: our worlds are becoming increasingly 24 7 About 20% of the working population, so about one in every five people, work non-standard time, so not your usual nine to five. People are also regularly travelling across multiple time zones for work or pleasure. And on top of this, about 30% of adults report one or more of the symptoms of insomnia so difficulty getting to sleep or difficulty staying asleep. At the same time, obesity rates are on the up. Here in the UK, over a quarter of adults are obese and three in ten boys and girls aged 2 to 15 are either overweight or obese. Diabetes is also on the rise. In the UK, the number of people diagnosed with diabetes has increased from 1.4 million to 2.6 million since 1996 to 2010. So, are these increased problems linked? A new study by Dr Orfeo Buxton and his team at Harvard Medical School has uncovered the physiological link between lack of sleep, change in circadian rhythm, diabetes and weight gain.
0: What we did was schedule the participants to a 28-hour day. So each day their light and dark cycle, their sleep and wake and their meal timing was shifted to four hours later. This would be similar to being on a planet with a 28-hour day. Our internal circadian clock can't synchronize to such a schedule. Imagine the last time you had a large meal at uh, two in the morning, your body's just not ready to process that food. And our participants experienced that for three weeks. That was the circadian disruption. Also because night workers and shift workers have difficulty sleeping during the day, we included sleep restriction along with that circadian disruption. So our circadian clock has an alerting signal during the daytime and a sleep signal at night, helping us to be awake and asleep at the usual time. So most night workers sleep a couple hours less during the day uh, because of both the endogenously generated rhythm of alertness and sleepiness and also because during the daytime there's bright light, more noise, and the phone's always on
3: so they elongated the circadian rhythm and decreased the amount of sleep the volunteers were allowed, effectively giving them a harsh version of rotational night shift work. Your body receives circadian cues which regulate how you respond to food. Muck about with your circadian clock, and you muck about with your metabolism. Your body has evolved to eat during the day and not at night, with dozens of genes and enzymes involved in digestion and metabolism highly expressed during the day. Eat in the middle of the night, and these enzymes are not readily available to digest the food. And your body is confused. It can't process information to tell you when you're feeling full. Your satiety system is sleepy at night, and it can't send the proper signals telling you that you've eaten enough
0: We were very interested in what we call ecologically valid assessments of metabolism. So we used uh, the response to a meal. Everybody has to eat after all. And when you give a controlled and identical meal, we saw that when participants had circadian disruption, their glucose levels go very high and stay high for longer.
3: And is that comparable to having diabetes in some way then?
0: Well, three of our participants out of 21 achieved levels two hours after the start of the meal that would meet the clinical criteria for prediabetes when they weren't that way at baseline. And fortunately, they recovered after nine days of uh, sleep at the normal circadian time. When we take in food, our pancreas responds by secreting insulin, which promotes the storage of that glucose and the use of that glucose in peripheral tissues, such as muscle. We saw a 27% decrease in the amount of insulin to the exact same meal when subjects were circadian disrupted.
3: What kind of impact would this have in terms of weight gain?
0: Our exposure to circadian disruption increased obesity risk is via the change in another parameter called resting metabolic rate. That's our um, basal metabolism subtracting out voluntary activity like exercise and so forth. So it's the amount of calories our body uses just in the normal course of things without the addition of exercise. What we saw was an 8% decrease. And while this number sounds small, it's sufficient that if someone had this 8% decrease in basal metabolic rate and no change in diet or activity levels, they would put on 10 to 12 pounds in a year, taking a normal weight person to obesity within several years.
3: So your results are showing a clear alteration in metabolism and also um, glucose levels in those people that have altered circadian rhythms and diminished sleep. What can shift workers do about this?
0: Night workers have several options. The first is to better adapt their circadian rhythms to the imposed work schedule. So, for example, by appropriately timing light and dark and meals, it's possible to synchronize your circadian rhythms and be eating at a time when your body is prepared for the infusion of that fuel. In addition to adapting your circadian rhythms, the other key strategy is to allow time for recovery. Uh, There's chronic sleep restriction associated with night work because the circadian drive for alerting during the day makes it very hard to sleep. So the idea would be to sleep in a silent, dark room with blackout shades and a cool room.
5: Harvard's Orfeo Buxton speaking with Hannah Critchlow. The study he was describing was published very recently in the journal Science Translational Medicine.
2: Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists.
1: Listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Ben Valsler. We'll continue our circadian clock theme in just a moment with more on the actual chemical workings of the body clock and how cells keep time. But first, let's take a look at some of this week's leading scientific breakthroughs. And to kick us off, UK scientists have shown this week that light-sensitive cells transplanted into the eyes of blind mice can restore vision, which could pave the way for the treatment of some forms of human blindness in future. Now, this is the work of Robin Alley, who's a researcher at UCL. It's published in the journal Nature this week. And what he and his colleagues have done is to take a mouse, which has got a genetic mutation called GNAT1, and these mice have rod cells that don't work. So they have a retina with rods in them, but when you shine light on these rods, they don't produce any signals that the brain can pick up on. What they've done is to transplant into these mice... Cells which had been collected from newborn mice, which were healthy, didn't have this mutation. In fact, they transplanted about 200,000 of these rod precursor cells into a space called the subretinal space in the recipient mice. And they then followed up what happened to these adult mice. They found that about 26,000 of the transplanted cells survived. And then by doing careful anatomical studies, they showed that these cells migrate to the right place in the retina They wire themselves in, they're able to show that they made connections to the retina and that when light was shone on the eye, the animal's brains showed brainwave activity showing that they could pick up on. The light, the animals also moved their eyes correctly according to a spot of light that was moved in front of them, showing that they were detecting light. Compared with control animals, this didn't happen, so it looked like the animals clearly were seeing something. They then did behavioral studies where they put the mice into a low light condition and they had them swimming in a water bath where they had to go and find a platform submerged just below the surface of the water. And the animals that had received the surgery could find the platform about 75% of the time successfully and the animals that had not received any cell implants or were control animals were only successful no more often than chance and in their paper the researchers say the results demonstrate for the first time that transplanted rod photoreceptor precursors can integrate into a dysfunctional adult retina and by directly connecting with the host retinal circuitry truly improve vision. Now some people are slightly more sceptical about this uh, in a number of ways one of them being well why did these research use animals that uh, didn't have complete blindness because these animals still had cones in their retina that would work it would have been better perhaps to use a mutant mouse that had a retina that didn't work at all but at the same time it's still intriguing and i think certainly deserves further examination
5: so these are not quite stem cells but cells that are partially differentiated already and would go on to become rod cells regardless
1: That's right. So when the animals are first born they have cells which are called rod precursor cells which are cells that are going to turn into rods and then wire themselves up to the retina if they were left in situ. In this case they went to these young animals, took those cells out and then put them into adults that had these rods that didn't work. They'd also got a label in those cells so they could track where they went and they could then see that they were going to the right places in the retina and wiring themselves up.
5: So if we are going to look at using this as a treatment then we're going to need to find a source of those cells or a way to differentiate proper stem cells into these precursors.
1: This really tests the idea of getting cells putting them into the retina and showing that they can wire themselves up, the source of those cells for, say, human treatment in future is more likely to be from a person's own cells because technology now exists to take, say, a skin cell and use various chemical tricks to persuade it to turn itself into a retinal rod precursor or cone precursor, which you could then put in, and that would hopefully, in the same way that worked in these mice, turn into a mature photoreceptor and restore vision in uh, an individual who had a certain type of, say, visual loss.
5: Well, from restoring senses to restoring movement, and with over 130,000 people suffering some paralysis as a result of spinal injury every year, devices that can bypass the spine and convert brain activity directly into coordinated movement could immeasurably improve thousands of lives. And now research at the University of Pittsburgh and Northwestern University has done just that, and they've returned the ability to grip a ball to partially paralysed monkeys. Functional Electrical Stimulation, or FES, has been used extensively and studied and deployed as a way to restore movement to paralysed limbs. The technique involves using electrodes to simulate the signals from the brain and stimulate muscles directly. Clinical systems already exist that can return a limited gripping type action to patients, but they generally involve tapping into the activity of a nearby healthy muscle and learning to use that non-related muscle to control the hand usually in a very simple pinch-type motion. So returning the full dexterous use of the hands would really be life-changing. And now, writing in Nature, Lee Miller and colleagues describe how they measured the electrical activity in the hand region of the primary motor cortex in the brain of monkeys while these monkeys were completing a couple of simple tasks. Importantly, they also measured the electrical activity that was going on in the muscles that controlled the hand and the forearm, and that allows them to link the brain activity they're with the muscle activity and therefore predict how muscles should react in response to a certain pattern of brain signals. The uh, two tasks that the monkeys had were very simple, but they did need some fine control of grip. So in one task, the monkeys had to pick up a ball that's roughly the size and weight of an apple and then drop that into a collecting tube and then they'd get a reward. The second task actually measured control of how hard the monkey could squeeze. So you had to squeeze a flexible tube at a particular strength for a given amount of time and then you'd get your reward. So once the monkeys had been trained up in these tasks and they'd measured the brain and muscle activity, the symptoms of a spinal injury were temporarily mimicked by knocking out the nerves in the elbow with anaesthetic. The researchers then used this functional electrical stimulation along with their predictions of the response of brain activity in order to activate the muscles in real time exactly how they expected they would react for that particular pattern of brain activity. Now this allowed the monkeys to complete both tasks again, showing that this technique can return not just that sort of binary on-off gripping motion, but actually the fine control, fine squeeze control that's needed to modulate grip strength. And that effectively bypassed the spinal cord completely.
1: So, are they saying that the same thing could be translated to humans? You could read the brain waves from the motor regions of the brain, and then using their algorithm for how muscles should respond to those sorts of patterns of brain activity, you would be able to superimpose that activity on the muscle and restore movements that are more physiological, more normal in these individuals to do those sorts of tasks.
5: That's exactly what they're saying, yes, but they do point out that just knocking out nerves with an anesthetic is a very simplistic model of a spinal injury, and really you'd get partial signals coming through you'd get spasms and so on so it is still going to take a bit more research before we can really just bypass the spine and return that movement
1: fascinating thank you very much ben now if you've ever walked out from a shop and set off an alarm i'm sure you haven't for anything other than accidental reasons then you've probably triggered an rfid that's radio frequency id tag system and the problem with these tags is that although they can identify an individual piece of merchandise and are therefore very useful they only work over very short distances and that limits their use but now new research from cambridge university has found a way to dramatically increase this range and therefore the usefulness of these pieces of equipment and to tell us more sitam paranathan sabayson who is from cambridge university's department of engineering where he's a research fellow is with us to tell it how it works First of all, thanks for joining us. Actually, what do these RFID tags do? How
6: do they do what they do? Sure. So RFID stands for Radio Frequency Identification. These RFID tags do not have internal power source. You have to power them up for them to receive signal and retransmit signal, for example. And so we have antennas. They transmit electromagnetic signal for them to basically receive the signal. And these RFID tags then have a unique ID stored in the microchip. So the energy comes in from a
1: radio signal from a a transmitter. It interacts with the tag, which gets its energy from that, powers up a little microchip, which sends a unique radio signal back to a detector, and that says, hi, here I am, and identifies that item uniquely. Absolutely. So that sounds terrific. What is the problem with these
6: tags? Why are they... Sure. The real challenge here is then, because they don't have a battery, hence very difficult for us to read this tag over a longer distance due to the fact that signal not only travel in one single direction, but also travels in multi-part directions. As, a As result- in
1: reflections off of walls and the floor and so on.
6: Exactly. As a result of that, the direct signal gets can cancel out with the reflected signals.
1: So and this is the signal coming in from the transmitter that you're beaming to the tags. It will bounce off all the surfaces, and in certain places you're going to cancel out the signal and
6: and get a sort of dead spot. Exactly, and we call them dead spot. And in reality is that over a large area you have so many dead spots, and typically you can only read... 60% 60% of the tags in a conventional approach. And so we developed a technology called dithering. We have multiple transmitters. They synchronise in a way we are able to move this spot around within that area. As a result of that, I shall be able to read this tag with 100% accuracy. I won't miss any single tag over that large area.
1: Wow. So where previously with a static array of transmitters you would end up with a pattern of dead spots it's a bit like if you walk around your house with a mobile phone it works in some rooms and not others you've got a pattern of dead spots and so if the tag is in one of those you're not going to spot it but with your system you're moving the dead spots around in the environment dithering them so even if a tag is in a dead spot one moment the next moment it's
6: not and you're going to get the signal back and so the trick is how you move the dead spots then so we use multiple transmitters in a synchronized way in, in, by doing some clever uh, advanced signal processing at the back end and also synchronize them. We are able to move this dead spot very quickly because you've got to move them very fast. It's typically in milliseconds kind of speed. By doing so, over the, over the one second period, I shall able to read all the single tags.
1: This means that then, rather than just having to put in massively powerful transmitters, which still wouldn't get around the dead spot problem, you've now got a simple array, you use these very cheap tags... And you can detect them over, I would say, probably much greater distances as well then.
6: Yes. So, so far we have demonstrated over 20 metre by 20 metre area with 100% accuracy. Uh, potentially you could scale that to a large building. In typically hundreds and hundreds of metre large buildings, you could have a small number of ta- antennas in and read all the tags over that area. How do you actually read
1: where the tags are? Because in order to scale it over a very big area like that you're detecting a tiny signal coming out from a tag which could be anywhere in that environment so is that a sort of triangulation trick then?
6: Exactly. So, in order to locate the tags, that's another challenge. And reading a tag is one challenge we just discussed. And locating the tags is another challenge. You could have triangulation. Even then, you're still going to have multi-path and the dead spot problem. But we have another invention which enables us to triangulate these tags in a novel way. As a result of that, you can um, locate these tags within one meter location accuracy. So supermarkets are going to be delighted because I'm thinking all I'd need to do
1: is I go into the supermarket, swipe my credit card and identify myself electronically to the supermarket with a sort of trolley or something and then every time I take something off the shelf the supermarket knows where the object is because you can have these tags on every piece of stock. So A, it's good for stock control, B, it stops shoplifting and C, it means that
6: I don't have to queue up and check out, I just walk out. Exactly. So, supermarket check automatic checkout is one of the long-term visionary applications we focusing on. Uh, as you said, you know, in the future, you don't need to stand in a queue. You just walk with your with your trolley and pass through that reader and give you the bills right away. There's no. There's no queue whatsoever. But there are other applications we're currently launching launching, one of which is document tracking and they work with local councils where they want to see where every single file is within large office area. And think want- also the hospital, because tracking down a patient's notes you know, it, do,
1: it sounds trivial, but, you know, if you're in the operating theatre and the notes are on the other side of the hospital, knowing where they are to send someone to get them could be really helpful.
6: I'm glad that you mentioned hospital because that's any of the customers we've been speaking very recently. They will also want to track the patients because they also want to learn how the diseases spread within hospitals. Have you got any trial data to show that this
1: will actually work, though? Because it's one thing to say, right, well, we think we can do this in supermarkets. We think we can make this work in a
6: hospital to track people and notes. What about the reality, though? Have you got data on this? So very recently, we have developed and demonstrated for the first time document tracking. And we were able to show that we were reading hundreds of files over that large area. We were demonstrating over 20 meter by 20 meter area. And there's also another big launch that uh, happened in London last week. Um, that is for tracking containers and carts over large area. And so, so far, we have a prototype system which is able to show that we have 100% coverage over that large area for the first time.
1: Amazing stuff. Thank you very much. That's Sitam Paranathan-Subason, who is from the Department of Engineering at Cambridge University. Now, uh, also this week, uh, this paper particularly caught my attention um, because it deals with the problem of heart disease, that one person in three is destined to die of some kind of heart-related problem. And one of the major issues is that when people have heart attacks, the affected part of the muscle is replaced with scar tissue, and scar tissue is structurally stiff, so it makes the heart not contract rhythmically and healthily it also does not beat of its own accord, so it can actually cause heart failure because effectively you've weakened the heart muscle and it doesn't conduct electricity properly so the heart muscle does not convey the electrical signals that normally coordinate the beating of the heart. So wouldn't it be rather nice if we could turn the heart's scar from the heart attack back into healthy muscle tissue and that's actually been achieved this week in situ by researchers at the Gladstone Institute of Cardiovascular Disease in San Francisco Deepak Srivastava and his Colleagues have got a paper in Nature this week where what they've done is to identify three genes. They're called GATA4, MEF2C, and TBX5. They go by the name GMT. And they've put these genes into a special set of viruses which can add them to cells in the scarred area of the heart. They take adult mice that have had a heart attack and therefore have a scar in their hearts. They inject about 100 million of these virus particles into the scarred area and this hits about 300,000 of these scar cells, the fibroblasts that make the fibrous tissue in the scar and it converts about 12% of them into heart muscle cells. And that's because these genes are active during embryonic development and make cells become heart cells in the first place. And in tests on these mice, they find that the cells have the characteristics of heart cells, they function like heart cells, they have the genetic profile of heart cells, and in functional tests, the mice show about a 30% improvement in the ejection function, the amount of blood coming out of the heart. And the researchers themselves say the ability to regenerate adult heart tissue from endogenous cells, in other words, cells that are already there is a promising approach to treating cardiac disease that may face fewer obstacles to clinical translation than other approaches. In other words, rather than trying to get stem cells, make them and put them into an injured part of the heart, if we do this, you can treat someone's damaged heart region like this and it would correct the problem in situ, turning their own cells back into healthy heart cells.
5: And now with a look at some of the other stories that have been making scientific headlines this week, here's Mira with our Naked Scientist Newsflash.
7: Water availability across Africa could be improved significantly by tapping into reservoirs of groundwater. Writing in the journal Environmental Research Letters, Helen Bonsall from the British Geological Survey collated data from regional maps and scientific literature to map the potential yield of groundwater across the African continent. The findings estimated the total volume available to be 0.66 million kilometres cubed more than 100 times that available on the surface annually. However, levels were found to vary greatly in different regions.
8: The amount of groundwater available in Africa varies considerably, and it's not available for widespread development of high-yielding boreholes across the continent. There's only large volumes of groundwater stored in North Africa, so in Libya, Chad, Algeria. In sub-Saharan Africa, where most of the population lives, there's actually much lower groundwater volume stored there. If it's exploited very carefully, then it is possible that groundwater could support small-scale drinking water supplies when there's 300 million people who don't have basic access to water.
7: A new effect of aspirin in the human body has been discovered by scientists at the University of Dundee. Once consumed, aspirin is rapidly broken down into the compound salicylate. When applied to human cells in the lab, Graham Hardy found that high concentrations of this compound activated the enzyme AMPK, a regulator of cell growth and metabolism. It's thought this effect of aspirin, away from its pain-killing properties, could be beneficial against a range of diseases, including cancer.
9: It's been found that the people who take aspirin long-term tend to have a lower incidence of cancer. So it's at least possible that the effects of taking regular aspirin on cancer might not be mediated by this sort of classical target, but might be mediated instead by this new target, which is AMPK. We haven't proved that yet, but you know it raises an exciting prospect that this very old drug might, might actually have some new applications.
7: A new polymer could enable cheaper, easy-to-produce solar cells. To be able to generate electricity, organic electronics such as solar cells require the use of materials that receive and release electrons readily. This usually means the use of conductors such as calcium or magnesium, which are highly reactive with air and water, and as a result are coated with thick, expensive materials to stabilise them. But now, a new polymer, developed by Bernard Kiplin from the Georgia Institute of Technology, has been shown to achieve this property in less reactive metals when applied to them as a thin coating.
9: These polymers are air stable so they don't degrade in contact with air and we hope that uh, the use of air stable materials in the field of organic photovoltaics will accelerate the deployment of these technologies through a reduced cost and uh, simpler manufacturing.
7: And finally, orangutans use advanced engineering skills when building their nests, according to scientists at the University of Manchester. By observing 14 orangutan nests in Sumatra, the team found that strength, flexibility and comfort were all taken into account by the apes when building their nests, with different types of branches being used for various aspects of design. Thick branches were only half-split and weaved together to make a strong basket-like structure and thinner branches were used to construct a comfortable lining to sleep on. Roland Enos is a member of the research team.
2: The Orangutans are much more sophisticated in their use of branches in producing nests than we uh, hitherto thought. So they seem to have some knowledge of the, what the properties of the wood are and how it will break and make best use of those properties And this has implications for the evolution of intelligence. It suggests that uh, we are not the only tool makers and that the evolution of intelligence might be related to the ability of, of organisms to manipulate their mechanical environment, not just their social environment.
7: And the work was published in the journal PNAS.
5: Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientists News Flash. Transcripts and the references for all of our news this week can be
1: found on our website at com slash news. Thanks, Ben. Amphibian species around the world are subject to an increasing threat in the form of a fungus. Over 200 amphibian species are thought to have become extinct and the problem isn't just restricted to frogs, toads and newts. During the 19th century, for instance, a fungal infection caused the potato famine in Ireland and, according to new research, it could affect food security Today, planet earth podcast presenter sue nelson went to london zoo's reptile house of harry potter fame to meet up with trent garner from the institute of zoology and matthew fisher from the department of infectious disease epidemiology at imperial college london she began by asking matthew why we haven't heard more about fungal infections affecting biodiversity Fungal infections
10: haven't really been a problem until the last two decades. And what we've noticed is that there are far more infections now than there used to be. I mean, we know about fungi driving frogs extinct, but there have also been very aggressive emergencies in bat populations in North America, bat white-nose syndrome, and we're also seeing dramatic emergencies in forests, so we all know about Dutch arm disease, but also in crops too. There are new virulent forms of fungal lineages which can devastate entire crops. So UG99 has a demonstrated potential to wipe out a quarter of the world's wheat supply. So we've been thinking very hard about why this is occurring and what these trends that we're observing actually mean.
8: Right, well let's look at one particular, how a fungus affects one particular species, and that's frogs. Trend. How bad have frog populations been affected?
11: In some parts of the world, they're thinking that species have actually gone extinct due to this fungus. And that's a rather unusual thing to have a parasite drive its host to extinction. Not only has this happened in one part of the world, but it's actually happened on multiple continents. And that's the thing that's so worrying, that such an unusual occurrence can actually be replicated on a global scale. Of course, that's not just species extinctions that are happening. We're seeing catastrophic population declines where the remnant populations are so small that they could go extinct at the blink of an eye for any reason because there's just not enough numbers there to maintain the population. And again, this is occurring at a global scale.
8: Right, well, I think it's time, listening to those helicopters, to actually go inside the the reptile house, get out of the noise here and perhaps go and see some of the frogs that have been affected. still noisy but uh, it's a popular time lots of school children and uh, familiar glass fronted cases containing snakes and lizards geckos on my left there an african bullfrog and a blue poison dart frog oh that is beautiful that is a vivid blue isn't it
11: they are beautiful aren't they and they come from a family of frogs it's been heavily affected by the fungus in Latin America, some of the species within the family are presumed extinct due to the emerging infectious disease.
8: Is the fungus that affects these frogs the same, Matt, that affects all frogs around the world, or are there different strains?
10: No, there's one single strain that's emerged, and we've dated that to the mid 1970s, perhaps a little bit earlier than that, and that seems to have emerged pretty much simultaneously. In
11: five continents. If we go over here there's actually a salamander species called the axolotl and it's a member of the family of ambistomatid salamanders and while we don't have any evidence of this species actually being affected by the disease they certainly are infected with the fungus and it's a critically endangered species.
8: Matthew mentioned about it spread over five continents what has caused the fungus to be spread in that way?
11: I think that's a really good question and I think we're still developing the evidence base to actually answer that question. Certainly a a lot of people invoke amphibian trade as being responsible for the spread. And we do have some evidence that amphibian trade has been responsible for some spread events. Exactly how it's been responsible for spread overall is yet to be determined.
8: When you have a fungus that can affect and potentially devastate crops of wheat or rice... That's extremely worrying. What can be done about this? We would
10: argue that much stronger international biosecurity is necessary. We see the doors to our countries absolutely wide open for the trade of animals and plants in the nursery trade or in the pet trade and these hosts have the demonstrated potential to carry infections, new infections into countries and we're witnessing the effect of that, the manifested potential of these pathogens. So we need to quarantine more and we need to give the international organisations which control trade in
11: bioactive material more muscle.
8: Do you think it's too late Trent? No, I
11: agree with Matt that we need to tighten up regulations and and tighten up enforcement to reduce the risk of disease being transported around. But even if disease occurs in an area, even if disease does emerge in an area, I do think that steps can be taken to reduce forcing of infection and potentially reduce the effects of the parasite without necessarily eliminating the parasite.
1: Trent Garner from the Institute of Zoology and Matthew Fisher from the Department of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at Imperial College London. A longer version of that report from Sue Nelson can be heard in the latest Planet Earth podcast. You can download it from nakedscientistscom slash planet earth. Keeping you
2: abreast of the world's best science, the Naked Scientists.
5: Returning to our topic of circadian rhythms, the body clock and sleep it seems that circadian rhythms are clearly important for staying fit, both in terms of good health and in terms of survival of the fittest. They fit chemical cycles to the day and night pattern, and this seems to have offered an evolutionary advantage. But why would that be, and what are these essential chemical pathways that encouraged body clocks to evolve? To find out more, we are joined by Cambridge University's Ak Ready. Ak, thank you ever so much for joining us. Uh, first off, What do we think the evolutionary advantages are of having a body
12: clock? Well, the ideas that have been banded around in the past are are to do with trying to separate out things that should happen in the day and night. And and one of the great examples that was used in the past um, was about cell division cycles. So in the days when cells were first evolving... Um, People thought that it might be advantageous to protect DNA replication, which is very sensitive to UV radiation from the sun and and have that going on in one part of the day uh, and then not having it going on at nighttime, for example. And then you separate these two phases. How do you do that? You have a timing mechanism that basically keeps track of when the day and night is going to come and basically wire it into the way that the, the cell divides, the cell cycle.
5: So, do we see it in in a wide range of species? We, we've already discussed the fact that plants seem to show a similar circadian rhythm as well.
12: Absolutely, yeah. In fact, um, the, really, animals and plants dominated how we thought about clocks, and, and it really wasn't until about twenty years ago that people first started looking in bacteria. People had mentioned bacteria uh, or mentioned the fact that bacteria may have clocks. Uh, many years ago, but it kind of got wiped out because people thought, "Well, why does a bacterium something that divides every half an hour or even more rapidly in some cases why Why does that need to have any knowledge of the t- over a twenty four hour cycle But it turns out actually the bacteria did evolve to basically do what I said before and and protect themselves from DNA damage at certain parts of the day versus the night time, and so they actually prefer dividing in the night time compared to the daytime
5: so even though you'll have multiple generations. In the space of a 24-hour cycle you will still see a circadian
12: rhythm exactly yeah so they they divide they continue on dividing but they prefer to divide it in the night time and we know that that happens um, in, in our cells as well in, in something that divides regularly like the liver for example
5: so what's the chemical background is it is it genetically controlled or is there a, a essentially a simpler process
12: well it's actually a combination of both things so in a, in a complex cell like uh, our cells we think that there are two main ways in which the the clockwork is made up of. I mean, this is what we currently know. The one that we talked about before was... Uh, genetics, which is switching things on and off basically over a 24-hour cycle. What we've discovered recently is that you can also get cycles without any genes whatsoever. So you make proteins, they need to be there. You need a blueprint, if you like, which is the the DNA genetic code. But once you make the proteins, they can actually oscillate on their own without genes being switched on and off. And we actually showed that in in red blood cells, which uh, don't have any DNA and they don't make any new protein. um, But they're still able to tick and tock over the 24-hour cycle without any influence from the outside world. And speaking of influence from the outside
5: world, what happens if you take away... All of the external stimulus, what what about the bacteria that are at the very deepest deep seas that never see any daylight at all and and those sorts of species do they keep going?
12: they keep going yeah as far as we know I mean we haven't you know got gone to the depths of the ocean and picked out those bacteria but but people have worked on on uh, cavefish for example, that have been kept isolated for many many um, generations to the extent that they even lost their eyes so they don't actually bother keeping track of uh, of light anymore but they still seem to maintain uh, pretty ropey but present circadian rhythms
5: I guess there are other things that fit the same pattern so even if you're not seeing any light there will be changes in temperature perhaps or changes in tides the way that water moves and uh, so do we think that these other physical factors might help keep things in check
12: absolutely I mean temperature is probably one of the most fundamental synchronization cues so we, we tend to think that light is the dominant thing but temperature is a you know something that's also been present ever since day one in terms of an oscillation Uh, And indeed oxygen cycles as well, which is is again another synchronization stimulus um, and and feeding cycles as well. So food availability from up above, you know, stuff at the the top of the the ocean may feed down to stuff uh, more deep in the ocean. So everything is cyclical in the ocean and there are even tidal rhythms as well that overlap (laughs) onto this.
5: So now that we have a better idea of what this this protein clockwork pathway really is, can that tell us why, or can that give us some good avenues to look at for why it is that disrupted circadian rhythms seem to have these
12: deleterious health effects? With all kind of science and medicine, we need to really kind of uh, understand the basics before we, we can start applying it. And that's, I think, we're at the stage now where we have enough information about all of the different components of the molecular clockwork, and we can actually start to kind of unravel how might how they might go wrong in diseases Um, and you know there have been a few diseases associated with mutations in particular circadian rhythm genes but not that many and it's maybe we've been looking in the wrong places or we're just not looking at the right genes. So there's lots of new
5: avenues for research just from that basic understanding?
12: Uh, We hope so. Well thank you very
5: much that's Ack Reddy he's from the Institute of Metabolic Science here at the University of Cambridge.
12: And you're
1: listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Ben Vowsler. We're talking about the body clock this week. Our guest, Professor Russell Foster from Oxford University, we'll let him off for that, and Cambridge University's Dr. Ack Reddy. Uh, let's kick off with a question that's uh, been sent in by Angie. She's in Chelmsford.
9: I've had poor sight all my life. I was born premature and so they said it was retrolental fibroplasia. You know, four I lost my right eye and last year I lost my left. But for the last 20 years I haven't been sleeping very well. I'm feeling so sick and nauseous in the mornings. Any clues?
1: Russell, what do you think might be going on with someone who, in Angie's case, was one of the things we raised in the interview, may not actually have any eyes that function.
4: Yeah I mean, I mean what we know is that if you have no eyes then your ability to regulate internal time is effectively lost in humans and so what Angie will, will be experiencing is essentially a constant drifting of the body clock now uh, Alan Bird at the Institute of Ophthalmology has been able to stabilise individuals with no eyes by using 3 milligrams of melatonin uh, in the evening and so what would be useful is either Angie could contact me directly or um, her local uh, GP and she needs to be advi- advised by an
5: We've had a question in from Leo Mandelbrot listening in Second Life. He wants to know if stress could actually produce the same result, the same desynchronicity, without actually having to move time zones.
4: Well, stress is, is probably one of the ways in which um, shift workers, for example, are suffering many of the pathologies. One thing we know, for example, is that elevated stress, will, will elevated cortisol, will r- reduce the immune system. And, and of course, the levels of infection are much higher in shift workers compared to day shift workers. So stress is going to be really important in our bodily responses to try and function when the, the clock is not in sync with the environment.
1: I've got a question here from Nat Spirit who says, why would it matter to bacteria if they divide it in a day or the night
12: well in terms of bacteria it obviously doesn't think about things it just tries to grow the best it can essentially but essentially if it wants to survive its survival of the fittest if it wants to make sure that its uh, progeny basically are the ones that live on um, and are capable of living on to the best that they can then they need to basically uh, make sure that they survive and and don't accumulate mutations that they don't actually need
1: Moonsnail Mandelbrot in Second Life says, can your skin sense enough light to help with timing issues?
12: I think the bottom line is that skin cells, although they have intrinsic circadian clocks within them, uh, cannot receive the light and make use of that light. They need the suprachiasmatic nucleus, uh, the master clock in the brain, to actually be able to talk to those cells and resynchronize them.
5: Russell, I also make the Naked Astronomy podcast, and as part of that, I'm often talking to Mars scientists. They have to synchronise their own body clocks with that of Mars, which is slightly longer than the Earth Day. So can we use them as a research group? And, and what would we expect to see happening as they're doing their research? The,
4: the Martian day is 24 hours and 36 minutes. And, of course, the Mars day is not going to map onto the day uh, a lot of the time in, in Houston. And, in fact, when the, the Martian rover was, was trundling around, it was working brilliantly, of course, during the Martian day. But sometimes it was out of sync with um, the mission control. And the mission control guys got so tired because it was out of sync that they turned the rover off because they couldn't function.
5: And Android Neox, listening in Second Life, wants to know if these ganglion cells in the retina, the ones that synchronise our body clocks, are more sensitive to other colours, or to some colours rather than others. So is there a particular region that really will have that resetting effect?
4: We've shown in both mice and humans that it's at four hundred and eighty nanometers, the blue part of the spectrum.
5: Does that mean they're more sensitive to blue than they are to others? Yes, it's,
4: you can imagine as a bell-shaped curve with the peak being at 480 in the blue part of the spectrum. But it's worth saying that you know, we originally discovered these cells because we were looking at how the clock regulates, how the clock is regulated by light. But actually what these cells are doing is, is plugged into a whole raft of different brain structures in the hypothalamus and the thalamus and they're regulating lots of brightness detection tasks generally. These are not just clock regulators. So, for example, part of our pupil constriction in response to bright light is via these photosensitive. Of ganglion cells. Again, blue light sensitive. Part of our arousal systems uh, and part of our sleep systems are all being regulated
5: by these extraordinary cells. Different types of light bulbs give out different ranges of light. What about when we're using energy saving light bulbs, which give out these very, very distinct bands of radiation? If that doesn't happen to coincide with the blue that we need to set our day, then does that mean that all of these energy-saving light bulbs might actually be disrupting us.
4: Well it raises a really very interesting issue because what you want to do is fine-tune artificial lighting systems to enhance reading at certain times but also you want to either stimulate those photosensitive ganglion cells, increase alertness let's say, or not stimulate them at night when you want to go to sleep. So there's increasing attention being paid to to fine-tune artificial light sources to stimulate both the visual system versus these photosensitive Of ganglion cells
5: and all of this talking about what we should and shouldn't see at different times of the day feeds us into rf axel's question which is are you supposed to avoid blue light when you want to sleep well that happens to coincide very nicely with our question of the week so here's hannah critchlow
2: the naked scientists question of the week brought to you in association with the how to wisman foundation supporting science and education from alpha to
3: omega This week we hear from a listener who wonders about the stimulating powers of light. Hello there, my name is Christian Lang and I'm based in Canterbury, Kent. I occasionally have trouble sleeping and find that reading a book before bed really helps me
4: to relax and feel tired. I was considering getting one of those electronic book readers that are becoming popular nowadays, but then I was wondering... With the light, the screen stimulate your brain in such a way that it will prevent you
9: from becoming tired.
3: So, are your monitors, screens and ebooks more than your standard page turner, leaving you tossing and turning and up all night? With the answer...
9: I'm Professor Deborah Skeen from the University of Surrey and I do studies on light and sleep. I mean, we know that light can affect alertness and it can affect your ability to sleep. We know that it, in fact, uh, stimulates receptors in the eye that are particularly sensitive to blue light. And uh, this light information then is sent all around the brain and can affect how tired you are and possibly your ability to sleep. So I would say if you had very bright light in your bedroom, and we know this from studies, that it in fact delays your sleep time and keeps you more awake. Now about the electronic books, They're not very bright in terms of the intensity of light, Uh, and so I would suspect that the light levels are are too low to to really affect your sleep. If you wanted to use a computer that had a very bright blue screen, this may keep you up.
3: So computer screens, televisions and bright lights all emit a strong blue light of high enough intensity to stimulate... So reading from a backlit screen of a laptop or tablet could lead to sleepless nights. However, most e-readers use special electronic paper technology, which has no backlighting and utilises reflected light in exactly the same way as normal paper. Because of this, an e-reader should only keep you awake if you can't put it down. Now, moving on to defuzz our next question.
10: Hello, naked scientists. This is Muggs in Shepherd's Bush. I was in the pub just now, and, and I was thinking about something, and I think you may have the answer to this. I guess that the gene that codes for men having hairy chests and, um, and hairy backs is just an evolutionary advantage in response to some sort of environmental pressure. But how come women don't have beards in response to the same pressures? Love the show.
3: So why have I lost my hairy beard and chest? Send your thoughts to chris at scientist.com. tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum.
1: Where's your beard and hairy chest gone? Well, it's that stuff you buy in the chemist, Hannah. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Next time, we're going to be answering your science questions. So if there's anything you want to know, do get in touch. You can email us, Chris at the naked You can also tweet at naked scientists, or you can post them on our Facebook page. That's at Facebook.com/slash the naked scientist. It just remains to say thank you to our guests this week, Professor Russell Foster, Dr. Ack Reddy, Setan Paranathan Sebasin, and Professor Orphea Buxton. Thank you also to our production team, Hannah Critchlow, Mira Senthalingam, and Tom Simkins. Until next time,
2: goodbye.